Welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am Andre Degler, the host and producer of the show. This is the last interview special recorded at the Slush conference in Helsinki. It was an amazing event with fascinating people around, and I'm so very happy that the Tech EU team got together and recorded almost 20 interviews during the event. If you haven't heard all of them yet, do check out the previous interview specials that we have been publishing over the past few weeks. I'm sure that they would make a great listening material for the holiday season. Let's get down to the business. Today, I have prepared two conversations with the founders from the Nordics that I want you to listen to. First up is Robert Falk, the co-founder and CEO at Einride, a company that is building autonomous electric trucks that's recently raised 25 million US dollars. Let's check it out. First of all, what is your name and what is it you're doing? My name is Robert Falk. I'm the founder and CEO of Enride. Enride, what is it? Enride is the first uh, company to be able to apply autonomous electric uh, transport vehicle on public road. How, how come that you have become uh, the first? I thought it was uh, being worked on uh, for years and years by now. I think it's about scaling and understanding the challenge that we're trying to face. Uh, so instead of trying to solve it for all applications, we saw choose to do it for certain applications and then start with a different logic for how to do it. Okay, so can you elaborate on that? So how did it work for you? What was the process like? We started with our customers to understand how logistics needs actually is and what we can actually start to apply and how we can apply it. And from there, we started to build the ability that we needed to do to do that in a safe way. I think that autonomous technology deployed on different road applications is all about how you can verify the safety application. Right. So, and you have produced uh, this uh, beautiful truck that we can see in like 20 meters from uh, where we are right now. Is it on, how many have you produced actually so far? Uh, we are in a different uh, stage of maturity for different vehicles, but we have one line now that's uh, at the public road applications. And the ambition is to have uh, several 50 units during next year. Mm -hmm. Where do you, where do you produce them? We don't produce them. We're not uh, consider ourselves a manufacturer. Right. So we we actually order them from the, according to our specifications with the customers. Okay. So what is your main product then? It's the software and the platform. Software and, and the platform. And, yeah, it's technology. I mean, it's, uh, we take the same approach to technology as, for instance, every Apple or Google or anyone do. It's literally that we are software and technology developer, and then we let other people manufacture the hardware. And uh, the truck is uh, like fully autonomous? Yes, it's a level 4 capable old truck, so it's uh, never it's not really able to have any driver in it. So, Yeah, you, I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, and uh, you already have them on public roads in Europe? Yes, in Sweden, yes. Okay, but uh, how, how, what's the regulation about it? I thought that it's not, it's not yet uh, even uh, possible to have a truck without a driver on the road yet. Uh, it's possible if you can verify the safety case. It's uh, really about safety, and I think it uh, depends also where kind of application you do. It's a big difference by going uh, downtown city area compared to doing it, for instance, in the airfield. 
So I right. think it's all about how to assess the total safety case. And uh, where are they being used right now? Like what sort of applications? Uh, we are doing it for logistic companies so called Divishenker. It's the fourth biggest logistics uh, company in the world. Uh, and they, uh, it's uh, from warehouse to warehouse. So it's basically within a uh, sort of closed environment? No, it's uh, from one warehouse and one area, and then a public road and the back onto a warehouse. Okay, great. This is this is really interesting. And then what is the fundamental difference, if there is any, between this autonomous driving and uh, the normal autonomous driving that we usually talk about uh, with cases of Waymo and Uber and all that. I think the big difference is the complexity what you're trying to address. I mean, if you want to go with taxi service and you need to have, be quite aware of where you want to go, and I, I'm a big fan of what uh, Google have been trying to accomplish and what they're doing, and I think it's also a huge challenge to deploy and verify the safety case in such complex environments as uh, neighborhoods, in front of schools, and a lot of other difficulties. So what we concentrate on is to really find uh, use cases and concentrate to work with our customers to uh, apply autonomous. And that's a little bit different approach. So we come from automation, factory, logistic side, rather than to have a tech IT background. Mm-hmm. And uh, the trucks uh, that you have uh, for uh, DBS Schenker, for example, uh, did you have to program them for this particular road that they are taking? Uh, of course, and that's a part of the pre, uh, sort of say, since we know exactly where we drive, we right. can apply it for it. Right, that, that, makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And uh, how long do you think it's going to take, and uh, are you actually even going towards having more like a universal sort of platform that you can just uh, deploy from anywhere to anywhere without thinking twice? I don't think that's the best way to do it, right. which is uh, literally the business case. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that when you look at autonomous, it's not that unique, actually. We have had autonomous solutions or guidance systems in factories and warehouses for uh, quite a long time, more than 100 years when you think about it. So it's more a little bit of what kind of guidance system you use or what kind of technology you use. But at the core, it's an enabler for something. It's the enabling of non-supervised human movement of goods or any type of vehicles. So literally, the business case is not really in autonomous. It's actually autonomous is more of an enabler for the business case itself. Because right. at, the, at the core, you have to solve it. For instance, like if you have autonomous, suddenly you can start to operate and transport goods that provide a service to a, a customer. Right, that makes sense. And if we talk about the other part of the uh, of the truck is that the fact that it's electric. So uh, one of the things I've heard recently, uh, an opinion, uh, that uh, electric trucks are not really that sustainable uh, because the batteries become really heavy, really fast. And that you can you won't be able to really like use them uh, efficiently. I think that there are strong incentives from the current uh, market. I mean, the market for uh, the transport of goods takes between seven or eight percent of global CO two emissions. Uh, it's one of the biggest contributors globally. There are a few big actors that provide the technology that also have strong incentives for keeping the market as it is. And it's also very much about storytelling and telling story. And uh, I think it's like climate change. I think that uh, it's quite all the uh, all pe- everyone involved in the industry, uh, battery electric, are very 
aligned with the fact that actually electric battery is way better for the environment. Mm-hmm. But that said, of course, you have to consider the fact like how is the battery produced? If you produce it with a good energy mix, you can get really good numbers for how much CO2 you actually use. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, of course, how you deploy the truck itself. But the electric electric vehicles enable us to go sustainable. And I think that the, the whole scientific community agrees that you can have the potential to lower the CO2 emissions with up to more than 90% going battery electric. So anyone saying anything else probably has a very strong incentive for something else. Uh, no, it's not. It's not necessarily that it's uh, bad uh, for environment or anything. It's uh, more about uh, the fact that you can't, as far as I understand, uh, make a truck that would have very long range, for example, because the batteries will be very heavy. And I think that's back to the logic that's been in the existing market. Because, like, uh, if you look at the filling rate in the club and uh, and the industry today, we're looking at somewhere with twenty percent fill rate. For the transport. That means that most mm-hmm. trucks are going around empty. Okay. And the other thing is that they go literally, a truck is used between eight to nine hours per day. The rest is stand still. So we're looking at efficiency of a system between six and seven percent of the total capacity mm-hmm. to transport. That means that we have such a unique uh, overcapacity. And the reason why we build trucks so big and why we made so much cargo on them is due to the logic that exists today. That's why we, with autonomous and electric, we can make the truck smaller and more applied for actually doing logistics. So it's actually better to have a smaller unit than more frequent runs mm-hmm. than have big consolidated never full trucks. And of course, there will be some applications where we would not be able to have electric because they have less intensity when it mm-hmm. comes from, for instance, if you want to co- pull a tank coast to coast in U.S., Diesel will be a great option, but if you want to do, so to say, eighty percent of transport and logistics, electric autonomous is extremely good choice. Right. And what's the so what's the effective range of uh, a truck like uh, the one uh, that you have on your stand today? I think the biggest and most important part of understanding when you go electric is that you have to start be very systematic how you run it and how you plan it. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest difference. We don't think about maximum range. We do operational cycles instead. Right. So we literally are looking at a 20% charge time rather than range. Okay. But it def- but one way or the other, this truck, basically it makes one trip and then it's charged while it's uh, being like uh, turned around and then it goes back and then it gets charged again and so on and so forth. No, or it could actually have several stops along the way. So it can have literally, depending on the... Because every profile and every usage of the truck varies depending on the cargo and the up, if the uphill, downhill. So it's literally about planning and understanding the actual need for charging. And then it becomes really optimizing running the battery in an optimal way for the use case. But there still must be a limitation. So what is the limitation for you in terms of uh, the distance that it can cover? I mean, if you want to completely deplete the battery, we can run more than 200 kilometers. Right. But it doesn't really happen, I guess, right? No, it's not a preferred way to do it. It's just uh, not very efficient and it's not very good for battery. Right. So, how far are you at the moment in uh, where uh, compared to where you want to be at the end of the day? Are we only getting started. 
I right. think that we started a company for the reason to actually challenge the existing players because uh, they have so strong uh, incentives to keep in the market in place. That's why we haven't gone electric. If you just look at the numbers, this is absolutely possible, and it's actually a good business case behind it. But not if you are in the current industry making diesel engines and gearboxes. Then you have a strong incentives to actually keep the market in place. And we started a company with the ambition to revolutionize the transport industry and really show that you can have a sustainable alternative to the market. So that are the solutions that are in market today. And uh, my ambition is that towards 2030 that we will have a completely different way of thinking about transport. We're starting on scale, massive deployment of electric and autonomous transport. Are you going to keep focusing on uh, trucks in yes. the future? I think that uh, some things are extremely unique with uh, transport. Mm -hmm. And we can, of course, we never know what the future holds. But I think that uh, we will be well occupied in the next 20 years making this transition happen. Right. Uh, and how hard or how easy is it to you uh, for you to scale to different countries? I think it varies from country to country and from state to state in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But I think that the incentives and the business case are equally good in every country. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to break down to co competitive edge for each of the individual countries. So I think that's going to be the most important uh, by looking at the market potential. Because once this starts to deploy, if you don't deploy it, you're going to have a higher cost for transport, and that's going to really hurt each individual country's uh, competitiveness. Right. So does it all come down to regulation at the end? Yeah, it will do. And then it's not, I mean, I wouldn't say regulation. It breaks down to uh, what we as citizens would like to see. What kind of system do we think could be deployed? Because at the heart of it, it's really about democracy and what kind of laws we want to make and what kind of technology we want to deploy. Right. And who or what uh, do you compete with? So what's your competitive landscape like? Uh, we, I mean, from a technology-wise, we're, we're competing with everyone else that's trying to solve how, literally how the transport of future looks like. But as a business perspective, you are competing with current truck drivers or the current uh, fleet owners, operators. Are you also interested in expanding into the U.S. market, where trucking is like huge? Yeah, we have uh, several clients in the U.S. already. Right. So I think that during 2020, we will be present more physically in the U.S. market as well. Okay, this is very interesting. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks a lot thank for uh, this Pleasure interview. Thanks for taking the time and good luck. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to this special episode of the Tech EU podcast. The second conversation of this show was recorded by Natalie Novik, my co-host, and it's an interview with Rudy Skogman, uh, the co-founder and CEO at Block Enterprises. Hi, I'm Rudy, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Block. Well, thank you so much, Rudy, for joining us today on the Techie Podcast. Thank you for having me. During this slush week where there's so many things going on um, and you're really high demands on your time. So we appreciate you taking the time this morning after the big party um, to sit down with us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, can, you can hear in my voice that I went through the, uh, through the party yesterday. <laughs> well, as you should. But um, first, can you tell us a little bit about Block and what Block Homes, um, what you're all about? Yeah, of course. So Block, what we're basically trying to do is to replace real estate agents with, uh, with algorithms. So actually trying to build technology to, to sort of automate the process of selling your home. 
And that's what we've basically been doing for the past two years. It sounds simple, but it's actually quite a complex technological solution to actually make that happen. Mm -hmm. And for us, what it's sort of really about is combining technology or sort of building technology in a way that actually makes the user experience better. And in the case of real estate, that means being able to combine the best parts of technology with the best, best parts of humans. Um, so stuff like customer service on the phone and on the email and chat or whatever, that's still humans. Like you, you as a human home seller do want to speak to a human. So we take that aspect really seriously. Mm -hmm. But then all of the sort of boring, repetitive, boring, boring work, that's, uh, that's completely automated. Mm -hmm. um, and that enables us to do stuff that no other real estate agent is really able to do. So in the past two years in Finland, we've sold about 350 million euros worth of apartments. So that's about 1,500, 1,600 apartments in two years. Mm -hmm. We basically sold that amount with, uh, with four or five agents. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so the scale that we can sort of reach... Uh, and the effectivity that we can reach is, is com on a completely different level mm -hmm. compared to like traditional real estate agents. Mm -hmm. So how did you know that there was a need for this type of technology and that the traditional real estate relationship wasn't cutting it anymore? It did really start from my own frustration towards the market. So I, uh, I, I sold and bought an apartment at, mm -hmm. at sort of the, exactly the same time. Both of those apartments had, so I sold with a traditional real estate agent, a real estate agent and I bought from a traditional real estate agent. And I didn't, re didn't really like the experience on either side. Mm -hmm. And I figured out that, you know, we're living in, that was in 2015, but like we're in 2015 mm -hmm. and we have like self-driving cars in the streets of San Francisco. And then I'm using a, a, like an agent here to, to sort of sell my apartment and paying, paying her something like 4% in the commission of that, you know, easy sale. It's, it's, you know, in cities like Helsinki or Stockholm or London or whatever, selling homes in the city is actually quite easy. So mm -hmm. I figured that there must be a way of sort of bringing technology in here mm -hmm. to make the experience, well, cheaper and better. And that's where it really sort of started. Mm -hmm. And you kind of talk about this balance between the human side and the technology side. Let's talk a little bit about the technology side and what makes your solution unique and really special experience for customers. Yeah, so when you look at this, this sort of space in general in Europe, a lot of the companies are, are you know, they're probably started as sort of tech, tech companies, but they've Quickly, many of the other companies have noticed that it's probably easier to scale in the beginning by just mm -hmm. hiring more agents. Mm -hmm. And then you're suddenly stuck with a company that's not really a tech startup anymore. It's more of a sort of service innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we've sort of taken a step where we really sort of look at all of the problems that we're facing and how can we solve those problems with building technology instead of hiring people. Mm -hmm. Then the technology itself to the customer, you know, the experience differs in a way that everything that you have is completely online. Uh, everything's very sort of transparent, so you know what's happening the whole time. Yeah. You can sort of follow what's happening. You can sort of understand what's happening. You can react to, you know, when someone makes an offer, you'll get it on your phone as a text message or and, and sort of email and all that stuff, so you can sort of react to it right away. Mm -hmm. So everything's much faster. Everything happens in the now. So, so that sort of makes the customer experience a lot better. But then, of course, on the background, that's where the technology actually plays a role. So that's in, in sort of work that we do to sell the apartment. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of getting all of the paperwork in, getting all the photos in, getting a floor plan in, making the actual ad, you know, getting the valuation done and all that sort of stuff. And that's where we have a lot of sort of algorithms doing 
the work mm -hmm. and then we sort of basically have humans just to sort of check that algorithms aren't making mistakes mm -hmm. and you know when we do that enough at some point we'll be able to even trust the computers to actually do the work so that we don't even need to do like human checkups too much at least great that that's kind of the the end goal right yeah that's the end goal so the end, end goal is to to really sort of get rid of um, any sort of human interaction in that in that process part of Mm. Where information is searched, filled in, um, you know, marketed, all of that sort of stuff. So, sort of getting rid of that, uh, in, in sort of getting rid of human workforce in that part. Right. So you are, you've been a serial entrepreneur for a long time and you've been really active in the Helsinki startup ecosystem for quite a number of years now. So when it came time when you were experiencing this problem, you were really uniquely situated to innovate and build a company to solve your own pain point. Yeah, you, yeah, you're correct. It's actually, it's my 10th year, uh, in the, uh, in the Finnish startup scene. So, so I was, I sort of joined it when it didn't exist in, mm -hmm. in, in, in many ways. And, Ended up doing a lot of stuff um, in in the scene in the very early days, and and, and joined um, you know when Mickey and Atte took over Slush in 2011. Um, I, I joined that that as well, and then spent five years at Slush, um, building this event to you know to a bit bigger than than what it was, um, or quite a bit bigger. Uh, but it's always it's it's for me coming back to Slush is always a great experience because it does keep getting better every single year. Mm -hmm. So. It just makes me sort of happy about it because I, I see that the, the sort of stuff that we built, it actually made sense. And the, the younger generation is, is making, making our vision or our sort of thoughts even, even better. Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of, it sort of really speaks for the, the slush way of doing things where, you know, you don't sort of have these old farts getting stuck <laughs> yeah. in the thing and sort of doing the same thing over and over again and trying to innovate, mm -hmm. but actually letting the younger, you know, younger people come in and actually do it better. Mm -hmm. For me, of course, when I did Slush, I only did Slush. I never sort of thought about what sort of future connections or whatever this might create for myself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you are correct. When I did just sort of decide to start my startup, of course... I was in a better situation in a way that I could go and talk to more experienced entrepreneurs. I could go and talk to experienced investors. I could sort of, I had a network around me, mm -hmm. which quite a, quite a few startup founders, I think still are missing in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you haven't sort of been building that for years. And in something uh, being here at Slush that's kind of really impossible to ignore is the impact of all of the volunteers that you have that make this event yeah. possible. I think there's 2,400 volunteers making this event possible. And for a lot of them, you can imagine being in this environment is almost like a startup school for them. And then all of those externalities that come out from the ecosystem just by having this experience. Yeah, no, no, I, I mean, definitely. Uh, and you can especially see that in the, uh, if, if you sort of look at the, the team that organizes Slush sort of year round, if you look at where those people have sort of ended up from there, mm. uh, I think I have, I've hired probably like four or five to block. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know that Vault has hired probably like tens, like, you know, dozens of us. Um, Smartly has hired like another dozen. So, mm. And Singa has hired as well. So they they all sort of end up into these ecosystem startups. And that's sort of really cool to see. Or they end up in the ecosystem startups either as, as sort of working at them or founding them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that's really, really cool. And then, you know, a lot of the volunteers as well end up working at the startups and then sort of 
probably figuring out that okay, this is actually quite this is actually quite cool in like reality as well, and then hopefully end up sort of founding startups in the in the in the coming years. I mean, this amount of start this amount of sort of volunteers um, is is quite a new thing. Like it's it started really like properly in 2014 and 15. That's when we had like this huge influx of of volunteers mm-hmm. at the at the main event. So I think in in sort of one or two years time, we're going to be seeing. A lot of these people, the people that started as volunteers, doing great things, and that's actually, you know, that's how Marianne, Marianne who was the previous CEO, of Slush got started mm-hmm. as as a sort of volunteer, and the mm-hmm. current CEO, Andreas, as a volunteer as well. Mm-hmm. So you really do see that sort of path from volunteer to to sort of doing like Slush in a bigger way, or or doing startups in a bigger way, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And and it really does work as a as an inspiration, I think. And I all of the volunteers that you talk to at the event they're all really really excited to be here and they're really sort of pumped with energy and they're really happy about being here yeah it, it's not like a, like a, like a duty or something like that they they really do want to be here and enjoy it mm-hmm. yeah and and i think you're you're kind of modest earlier and saying kind of you were from the beginning starting with slush and kind mm-hmm. of grew it from a small thing to a big thing well slush is really uh makes a major impact on the european technology landscape so i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that transition and kind of how, how some of the things that got it started what were some of the concepts and themes that were important then and how they've tra- changed as the organization and the event has grown yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot. It's 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 a completely different beast than what it was <laughs> when we got started in 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 2011. Because I mean, back then, I think in the at the 2011 slush, I think we had like four international investors <laughs> attending the event. Mm-hmm. So that the sort of first obstacle with that we were struggling with was actually getting investors to just come to Finland and look at the startups, like mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. That was solved, in, in my opinion, that was solved with a with a combination of a kick-ass event where we could like at 2011 slash we, we could actually show that there are interesting startups here. Yeah. Um, so the investor that ca- investors that came actually sort of talked to each, you know, talked to each other and talked to other investors and said that there are actually cool startups here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on top of that, we had the, um, we had the rise of Angry Birds and then the rise of Supercell right after that, mm-hmm. which helped in the sense that, that Ilka and Peter really sort of got into contact with, you know, really, really hardcore investors and really, really hardcore people in general in the startup scene outside Finland, mm-hmm. and and then we were sort of able to to sort of sort of join that. And and in 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 in, in my thought, that really proves that Slush is very much a community effort. It's mm-hmm. not the core team sort of does its thing, but without the community around of it, around it it would you know it wouldn't be here it wouldn't be like this mm-hmm. without everybody helping in and pitching in and doing their own part in making this thing happen but yeah i can, I can see a sort of big thing what i'm sort of happy about is that from the beginning the the main idea has been to connect startups with investors and investors mm-hmm. with startups mm-hmm. and we're sitting right next to the meeting area with you know hundreds and hundreds of tables and hundreds you know thousands of meetings going on the whole time Mm-hmm. So I'm really sort of happy to see that that sort of core element is still there. And I think it's very much needed on mm-hmm. sort of both sides. You know, investors want deal flow and startups want investors. So it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, you see so much sort of new stuff popping up as well. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of talks about things that were not topics, to be honest, 
you know, a few years ago. So a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of sort of things going on with like diversity and inclusivity mm -hmm. and, uh, and a lot of talks in fields of technology that didn't exist, you know, a few years ago. Stuff like, you know, climate change has really popped up and that's a big theme this year mm -hmm. uh, with all of the sort of sustainability going on at the event as well. And that's yeah. actually a big change in the event itself. The thought of like how sustainable is is it to have this event yeah. and taking into account that all of the cups and stuff that you have are actually biodegradable. Mm -hmm. And your your you know whole carbon footprint is is sort of what's the word like um, as small as possible really. as small as possible and 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 even the print that you do make is is compensated okay um so that's something that you know you didn't think about back in like 2011 12 right. 13 14 even like 15 because those things weren't topics mm -hmm. that people are talking and about. And it kind of also speaks how tech now now is everything, yeah. right? And as a tech event, you have the opportunity to talk and speak to all of these really major yeah. issues and kind of bring them to the forefront and put them on stage in such a incredible platform that you have here. No, it's it, it, it really is. And and I think like all of this new new stuff is just it's it's awesome. I think the only thing that I sort of want, probably want to try to add to next year is is sort of more of sort of technology in 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 solving major issues also outside of sort of climate change mm -hmm. uh, because climate change of course it, it's a huge topic right now but there are so many other things where technology is making a huge impact in mm -hmm. in, in in sort of getting people out of poverty getting people into schools getting people you know, clean water getting people clean, clean sanitation all of that sort of stuff is sort of connected to the tech field and the yeah. startup field as well you know there's there's been a few talks around that but um, I, I think that's something that's probably going to be a major thing next year yeah um, and kind of continuing to scale the ambition of the conference exactly. and what it can do but not I, I not scaling it in in terms of numbers too much mm -hmm. and i think that's where slush has, slush has done a really really good job in sort mm -hmm. of not making it too big either yeah. like yeah. it was like fifteen thousand people in in 2015 and now it's like twenty five thousand people so you could have sort of in theory you could you could have grown it from like 15 to probably like thirty five thousand in this sort of time but there's been a conscious de decision in sort of keeping it, you know, big enough so that it's interesting, but small enough so that you actually do have, you still have sort of random encounters on the on the corridors, and you you still still sort of meet relevant people semi easily. And and something that that's always been at the forefront is that it's community driven. Yes. And the growth of Slush and kind of its impact is it mirrors a lot in a lot of ways. Of, Finland as a technology ecosystem yep. has as well. Yep. Um, as a Finnish founder um, working in Helsinki and kind of and based here, um, can you talk a little bit about the ecosystem and what Finland has to offer for tech startups and why it, it's such a great environment to, to build a company such as Block? Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what my sort of number one thing about, about Helsinki and Finland in general is that the ecosystem is, it's a small country. So the ecosystem is really, so really small as well. What's great about the ecosystem is that there's no competition in the mm -hmm. like in the field, and there's no like competitors that are trying to get the ecosystem to themselves in any way. Mm -hmm. There's just like one ecosystem, and once you're in it, you're in it. There's yeah. there's sort of nothing else to find, so to say. Everybody is in that yeah. same sort of ecosystem bubble, and it's like in many other places around Europe, for example. The cities get so big and the, the sort of countries get so big that you ha have like, you know, a dozen different organizations claiming that they're, they are the ecosystem. And then you're mm -hmm. sort of torn between, you know, should I be here or should I be here? Yeah. Whereas in Helsinki, it's really clear, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's built around slush 
and mm-hmm. and and everybody works around this sort of ecosystem bubble or whatever whatever and you want to call it. What do you think is the secret to that? Because I've been in a lot of different mm. ecosystems around Europe and around the world and you do see these different silos of mm. community and different places and kind of sometimes competition sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So what makes things different here? It's it's a good question and I, I don't think that we have like a pure answer to it. I, I think in, in general it just is that we we sort of trust that the guys that are doing good stuff are doing good stuff and there's no need to sort of compete with that good stuff rather mm-hmm. in in a market like this it makes sense to help them make that good stuff even better so yeah. you end up doing a lot of stuff together mm-hmm. instead of doing stuff against each other yeah um and i think that's really where it sort of where it sort of has started in mm-hmm. in in the sort of very beginning of the ecosystem and then it then that's just become the way of doing it for example, there are entrepreneurship organizations in every sort of bigger university in Finland, mm-hmm. but those work together yeah. on like building events and building, you know, uh, b- building like ecosystems. They, they, you know, so they get like their people from their schools to come to the mm-hmm. ecosystem, but then mm-hmm. it's like a bigger thing mm-hmm. um, that they're brought into, and I think that's where it sort of that's where it sort of starts. Yeah, and and I think what's great about Slush is it has a chance to shine a light on mm. this collaborative nature, and also you have so many international startups and institutions coming here that they actually can take that away with them as well. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that they really do. Um, and I, I, I sort of, I personally really sort of believe that Slush wouldn't be here without being nonprofit to start with, and then being sort of community built on top of that um, and especially sort of community built in the way that it is where, you know, a lot of people sort of just chip in without sort of thinking about personal benefits or anything like that. It's just you do it because you want to see the team succeed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really special. And thank you so much for chatting with us today and for sharing all of your experience with us. Cool. No, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Wonderful. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Now, this is it for today's special episode. Let us know what you think on Twitter or send an email to andre at tech.eu or contact us in any other way you know of. We are always very happy to hear from you. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.